There are many Bostons. The ones most see with Fenway, Faneuil Hall, the Freedom Trail. And then there are the others. <clears throat> Excuse me. No, obviously that voice wasn't mine, although it'd be pretty great if it was. That was actually Michael Kenneth Williams, who's better known to most of the world as Omar from the TV show The Wire. And that was taken from a 2013 ESPN video about one of our guests today. So stick around to find out who Omar was talking about and what other Boston he was referencing in this, the third episode of Tech It Forward. Welcome to Tech It Forward, I'm Jay Kunzo, and this episode holds a near and dear place to my heart because it's about something that I'm actually trying to do with this very podcast. On today's episode, stories that spread. My name is John Feynman, I'm the executive director and founder of Inner City Weightlifting. In case you're wondering, he was the guy that the ESPN feature piece was all about. Well, him and his organization, Inner City Weightlifting. This is a nonprofit that John founded on the idea that you can bring together people who are at risk of committing violent crimes or already doing so and bring them into a gym where they can both work out and find a sense of community. The gym then offers them the ability to get their GED and even learn how to become personal trainers for people from all kinds of backgrounds. So this gym actually has clientele ranging from startup executives to head chefs in Boston to folks like you and me who are just looking for a good workout. And then for the students who are most committed to the program, we'll get them certified through the National Academy of Sports Medicine as personal trainers. And from there, we start marketing to find people from opposite socioeconomic backgrounds. They'll come into our gym, pay our students $20 or more to, tra to be trained by our students. And what happens is that not only do our students end up with a job that pays $20 or more an hour, but they start feeling accepted in a world that traditionally has segregated and isolated them to the very streets that, that they found in the first place it really becomes our ticket for much more scalable and systemic changes. Perceptions start to change on both sides of the coin. So our students feel accepted, but more important, society starts to see our students for who they are, the very real challenges that they're facing and see past the false labels that society has placed upon them. And that's awesome, right? That's a hugely admirable company and mission. However, there's lots of great nonprofits out there doing equally admirable work. So what was it about John's story that was so easily spread to organizations like ESPN to do an entire video all around them, you know, with Omar from The Wire narrating it. Well, to understand that, you first need to understand that quote back at the beginning. Remember what Michael Kenneth Williams was saying about Boston? There are many Bostons. Nope, not that part. The ones most see. Still listening. With Fenway, Faneuil Hall. Jealous of his voice. The Freedom Trail. And then there are the others. Okay, that, right there. There are the others. What other parts of Boston, which is such a small, easily navigable town, are there to really get to know? Well, as you could probably already guess, these are the parts that John and inner city weightlifting really thrive in. You know, so you got, you got Lucerne, you got Mascot, you got Moore's Norfolk, you've got Columbia Road, you've got Magnolia, you've got Intervale, you've got Mission, you've got Villa Victoria. Now, in case you're wondering, John is not listing out local bus stops or bars. He's listing Boston gangs. Um, yes, yeah, so there's over 100 in Boston now. And John should know his organization works with kids who are at the highest risk of joining these gangs. You've got uh, Henry Street, George. If there are 10 people getting out of jail tomorrow, four of them probably are going to do well no matter what. Four could go either way, and two are pretty much guaranteed to go back. We're going to screen out the eight to get to the two. 
whereas a lot of people would rather screen out the six to get to the four. It's a way to game the numbers. You go after the easier kids to reach, and your numbers look much better. You raise more funding, you win more awards, and so on. John doesn't believe in that. You know, for us, we, we look at the bad statistics as the good statistics because it's proving the work that we're doing. It's right. proving that we're reaching the very population that we set out for. Right. And, and these were the young people with machetes and guns in their hands and actually driving that disproportionate percentage of violence in the area. So it's important to get a little backstory here on John Feynman. He grew up an athlete. He played soccer, but he was very undersized. And even though he played in college, he took to weightlifting to get an edge and gain a little strength on his competitors. He did a year of AmeriCorps where he worked with inner city students in East Boston. Specifically, he was focused on after school sports programs. He went to get an MBA, which afforded him both the time and the knowledge to launch his own nonprofit. And he was focused on weightlifting and weight training. But just one problem. Even if John could open the gym, you know, like set up the organization, get a couple trainers, get all the equipment, find a location in town, even if he could pull off all of that, how would he get these kids off the streets and into the gym? Initially, it was me going out some basketball courts, get my butt kicked at basketball as I'm no good, um, but using that as an excuse to uh, ask for help. Um, it wasn't really me pitching this idea, but it was me you know, having known where some of the, the historically more, more deadly gangs were, were hanging out. All right, guys, I need to jump in for just a second. So I'm sitting there listening to John's story, and the entire time I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes, and I want you to try to do that for just a quick moment. Here he is, probably under five foot eight, maybe 160 pounds after a buffet meal, kid from Amherst, Massachusetts, great background, nice kid, and to recruit for inner city weightlifting, he finds the toughest playgrounds in the toughest neighborhoods in Boston with the toughest young kids playing basketball, and he just walks up to them. I mean, could you do that? Seriously, no matter how good a person you actually think you are deep down, could you really do that? I mean, I can't. And I'm sorry to insert a lot of opinion here, but that blew me away. This guy has such conviction around his mission that he was willing to just walk up to them. And so what does he actually say when he reaches them? There's about 20 to 30 of them. Uh, you know, they're, they're all kind of looking in different directions, trying to figure out who, who the heck is this guy? Is he FBI or, or what's, what's going on? Um, and there's usually one or two guys that are kind of making some eye contact. So you just focus on them. And the next thing you know, the second that you get to, you know, asking for jobs or, or asking for help and there might be some job opportunities, all of a sudden you feel a hand on your shoulder like, you got job opportunities? Like, yeah, let's come to the gym and, and we'll figure it out. John says he felt this was the most genuine way to go about it, rather than trying to claim he knew what was best for these people. He says that the biggest mistake that people make in helping this population is that they preach, they pontificate, they profess to know too much. But the fact is, they don't. Just think about yourself. Maybe you have your act together. I mean, you're listening to a business podcast and need some sort of understanding of technology just to access it. And somewhere deep down inside you, whether or not you'd admit this publicly, you probably see someone on the streets now and again and think, I could give them advice that would help them get back on their feet and onto a better life. But John says that that's ridiculous. Our students are getting shot at on a daily basis. They walk outside that door, they look left and right, not to see what car is coming, but to see who's waiting for them. Uh, we saw one student twice within a week uh, he was shot at coming out his front door. They're not going through anything that I could ever fully comprehend. 
John has seen more than he ever could have imagined running inner city weightlifting. And not a day goes by that he doesn't think about the first student he ever reached. His name was Alexan. Alexan Hercules, to be exact. He was 12. He was getting initiated into a gang called MS-13. A notoriously violent gang in Boston. John first met Alexan during his year of AmeriCorps, but when he came back to the city to launch inner city weightlifting, Alexan was the gym's first student. And from there, things really started working. You know, it starts off with just a couple guys. Next thing you know, they're bringing all their friends. Their friends start to like it. Their friends bring their friends, and, and it becomes this mm -hmm. huge word of mouth. Right. Thing. And steadily, over time, the gym became more than just a place to work out for these students. It became a community. And Alexan turned a corner. He went to the gym constantly. He felt it was becoming a family for him. And he was able to move a little bit further away from gang life. But then, one summer night, Alexan left the gym. On his walk home, he decided to stop and pick up some food for his daughter and his girlfriend. John says he doesn't know exactly what happened, but Alexan walked past some people that he'd had some history with. And just as too many of these stories end, he was stabbed and killed. Alexan Hercules was 19 years old. John admits that despite losing other students before, this one in particular really hurt. He credits Alexan with changing the course of his life, not only his business, but everything he does. I'm lucky to be by their side. This organization, uh, from, from an employee standpoint, we're all lucky to be by their side. But we don't assume we know what's best. Uh, we assume they know what's best, and our job is to try to put as many positive solutions on the table and hope that they take one of the positive solutions rather than one of the negative solutions. Today, John approaches inner city weightlifting's mission with deeper conviction and more passion than ever before. You know, one of my favorite ways of, of explaining it is that it's, it's when I go into a meeting and someone says someone, uh, a student's not ready, um, I'm talking about a young person, so oh, they're, they're not ready for that program. That's the person I'll offer a job in our program the next day. Um, or if someone says that person's too dangerous, leave them alone. I'll go right back to the gym. I'll say that name to our students and I'll ask, hey, you know this guy? And most of the time they do. I'm like, hey, can we get him in the gym? Um, so you know, we're really focused on, on the people that everyone else has written off. And remember, it's not about forcing the solution, according to John. It's about something much more subtle, but at the same time, much more powerful. The other day I'm driving three of our, our younger students home so one's 15 one's 16 and one's 17 and the 17 year old's talking about having a kid and saying how if he has a kid if he waits till he's 21 his grandmother's going to spoil the kid if he has it now then the grandmother's going to have nothing to do with this kid uh you know me being this little white guy from amherst i couldn't help but to say you know sounds like you should wait till you're 21. um i already know the answer that's coming back to me and all of them kind of look at me and there's like there's no guarantees we're alive at 21. And if that's where your mental state is and if not only that's where your mental state is, but that's where the reality of the situation you're living in is. You know, success doesn't start with a great job or a great education. It doesn't start with recidivism. It starts with something as simple as hope. Now that bears repeating. It starts with something as simple as hope. Poverty, violence, and tragedy. And through all that, an undenying, unrelenting mission to provide hope where there's seemingly only despair. To provide community where there's isolation understanding where there's misconception. Is it any wonder that this story spread all the way to ESPN? 
And what started as an article by the Boston Globe led to the opportunity for John to tell his students' stories on the grandest of stages. And then I get an email, I think a couple weeks later, saying you know, that, that they were interested in covering a story. And, and you know, my eyes lit up, and I'm like, you know, I, I was dreaming as a little kid that, that I could get on sports. And I thought it was going to be for soccer, and this it was actually even cooler, I think. So the ESPN crew shows up at the gym, and... All the students were on the pack list. Uh, pack list is a list of uh, approximately 300 young people identified by police in Boston who are were known as the high-impact players. In other words? The young people most likely to shoot someone or get shot. And here they are, smiling and shaking the hand of the ESPN video producer who's about to film them and interview them. And then they just go about their afternoons. I think that's the other part that really helps our, our message spread is that society has this really defined stereotype of our students and it doesn't add up when you actually know them. Yes, they're making some of the bad decisions and, and, and there is the reality of, of, of some of the negative things that are happening, but there's also the reality of how good they are um, and, and can be if, if and when given the chance mm -hmm. um, and put into a different, different community and different environment. Um, and it's why I bring students to almost every meeting I have. One, you know, I just have more fun when they're around. Two. Uh, you know, there's certain things that I could say um, that someone could probably maybe not believe um, that I know from, from having worked with, with our students, but when a student says it, it resonates differently. So for, for instance, we're trying to open up a second site right now. Um, we're hoping to actually by the end of the year open up in, in Kendall Square. And there's a lot of questions at first, why not downtown Boston? Um, we are a Boston-based organization. We work with Boston youth. And you know, it's as simple for me as bringing one of our students and, set, and he'll just say, I'll get shot if I go downtown. And from there, no one's gonna argue. So ESPN got a heavy dose of reality and the reality that John faces every single day along with his students. And after the video aired, the reaction couldn't have been better. You know, maybe about 15 seconds before it ends, all of a sudden my phone starts ringing, our, our website crashed because too many people went there. Um, I check my email and I literally have 60 something emails all coming in at the same time uh, and that 60 then turns into 100, 300, 500. Um, it, it was incredible uh, and I think that for the people who weren't able to get to the gym and, and weren't able to kind of see that direct work we do, for them to get to see it in, in that capacity, um, it resonates differently. Um, and again, it's that same kind of story of, you know, I can say something, but when I have a student sitting here with me and they say it, it, it carries a different weight. Um, and, and that's what ESPN did for us. It gave everyone a, a chance for, for 12 minutes to, to look inside our gym and, and see what's happening. Um, some of the good, some of the bad, and, and some of the sad realities that, that we have to deal with. So you've already heard a snippet from Michael Kenneth Williams, a.k.a. Omar, from The Wire. But let's play the very beginning of that video. There was a difference between burden and weight. Burden is what we carry. Weight, what we lift, and what we let down. The difference may seem small, but to some, it feels heavy, like the load between life and freedom. End of the day, it's you in the bar. The progress that you make 
is because of you. There are many Bostons. The ones most see with Fenway, Faneuil Hall, the Freedom Trail, and then there are the others. Some people, they'd be like, yeah, I've been to Boston. I'd be like, yeah, what part of Boston you been to? I've been to Cambridge. <laughs> you ain't been to no Boston. It's not just this beautiful place that everybody think it is. And as John faces that other Boston head on, he's confident his story will keep on spreading as his mission starts to stick. To date, inner city weightlifting has helped dozens of students turn their lives around. The average number of arrests per student prior to joining the gym is 12 per person. After they join, just one. And while 82% of John's students were arrested for weapon possession before joining, that number drops to just 4% after. But he knows they have a long way to go. This story has a much stronger component in terms of defining that why it's not a lack of care, but it is a lack of hope. Because if society continues to believe that our students just don't care, easy to write them off. If society believes that our students do care and what they're lacking is hope, now it's on us to provide that hope. And now there's no reason to say this is just what happens and, and this is the case. Um, and it just shifts the whole culture of how we how we work with this population and, and violence in general um, with, with a more accepting approach and, and an approach that, look, they could very well make that bad decision tomorrow, but shame on us if we don't do something today to at least try to stop that from happening. Perhaps the true definition of strength doesn't lie in how much weight you lift. It's in how long you hold it and how far you carry it. For all the burden John Feynman helps to ease, his own weight only grows. And he won't let the bar drop. The scariest part of my day is every night when we close the gym. We close the door and we shut off the lights. That's when our students go back to the same street where they just got shot, where they just lost a friend, where they just got locked up. That's when the challenge begins. We're still only at the beginning of this. Special thanks to John Feynman, the founder and executive director of Inner City Weightlifting. To learn more, go to innercityweightlifting.org. Stick around for more. Hey guys, Jay Gunzo here. And this is normally the place where I'll tell you to tweet using the hashtag TechItForward with the forward abbreviated FWD, or to listen to all our shows on iTunes or SoundCloud. Well, okay, I guess I just did ask you to do all that, and we'd still love you to. But today I wanted to tell you a little bit about TUG, which is the organization that makes this show possible. It stands for Technology Underwriting the Greater Good, and they bring together everyone in the Boston startup ecosystem, VCs, entrepreneurs, startup teams, you name it, to help give back and support nonprofits focused on Boston's youth. So definitely check them out on Twitter at TUG.org, that's T-U-G-G-O-R-G, or visit them at TUG.org to sign up for event alerts and to start giving back to our great community today. Next up on Tech It Forward, we have a very special guest, the CEO of Wistia, Chris Savage. Don't go away.
Now here's a problem. What if you want your story to spread, but you're a business and your product is pretty boring? Or maybe you just keep blabbing on and on about how great your product is and how many features it has and here's what it costs and buy now and look at me and over here and right this way and buy, 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 buy. Anyway, there are tons of companies where that's true. And then there's Wistia. All right. Uh, my name is Chris Savage. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Wistia. Um, at Wistia, we basically make video tools for marketers. By Chris's own admission, Wistia's product is boring. They sell video hosting solutions for businesses. But to experience their company, their brand, and their library of educational videos is anything but boring. They're fun, they're exciting, they have characters, they do little funny effects, they make inside jokes that you can pick up on between videos, and almost every video ends with somebody laughing. They're pretty darn addicting, to be honest. So how do they do it? I mean, how do they take a seemingly boring product and build a great big audience that adores them out of that? Well, according to Chris, they do something that might seem a little counterintuitive to a lot of businesses. They don't actually market their product, they market a mission. Yes. So um, marketing a mission to me is the idea that instead of trying to market and sell a product, we're trying to market and sell a mission. And our goal is that our product solves like 3% of that mission. And um, so in our case, we just want to help people do more with video, right? So what are the ways we could do that? We could make videos about scripting. We could make videos about lighting. We can make videos about which tripod to use or like microphone or whatever. We can write stuff. We can host conferences. We host our first conference two months ago. We could do all these different types of things. And for our customer to be successful, like using video to get more from video, there's probably 20 things that they have to do to really like they have to do right. They have to make 20 right decisions. And our product is probably one or two of those decisions. And that realization is kind of exciting because it's like, wow, there's so much open field for things that we can talk about and things that we can teach. But the thing that holds it together is the mission. And so when we've tried content that wasn't really furthering like people doing more video or being helpful like and granted this is a huge mission it's a really big thing but the stuff that's fallen outside of it has never worked and my thesis is that if we can get people who care about this mission then instead of telling someone else hey you should go use wistia this product is so great this hosting is reliable the hd is great whatever they say hey if you go check out wistia like you should join this revolution about like getting more out of video like, do you want to do that? And I think when you think about the audience that cares about doing more out of like with video, it's a much larger audience than cares about video hosting. So something you should know around Boston tech for the last few years, there's been this dialogue going on that every startup that has ever existed in Boston or exists today or will ever exist until the end of all time, I guess, is terrible at marketing itself. And it's not like the almighty, chess-beating, tech-crunch-worthy Silicon Valley startups that apparently are brilliant brand marketers, or even New York startups that are great at waving their arms around and getting attention for relatively nothing. Or so the dialogue goes. But Chris, well, quite frankly, he thinks that's all total crap. To me, it seems like a pretty defeatist attitude and also inaccurate. Um, I think that a lot of the companies that have done a great job of marketing in Boston, their story is not like, I'm a Boston company. They're just marketing. And like TripAdvisor, uh, Kayak, um, 
I mean, HubSpot has obviously done a great job. They've done a great job locally. They've done a pretty great job like across the nation. But their story is not like we're HubSpot and we're Boston. It's like no inbound marketing. Like they have a message which transcends like a lot of a lot of other stuff. I asked Chris where this perception came from that no startup in Boston is good at marketing itself. It feels to me like there's a different appetite for risk here. And um, the appetite for risk is just it's just more short-term ROI driven than long-term. Um, and I think that, that what that causes is for us to be upset and concerned that like Boston isn't getting enough credit, where the real way to get Boston more credit is just to do great things. So in other words, don't force people to care about you, do things that are worth caring about. Yes. So you and I talked a while ago when I was at HubSpot and we were doing an event together and you talked about how at first the marketing style that you took on at Wistia was unclear whether or not it was going to return results. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it seemed like it sort of hit Yeah. and you were getting customers and your audience was sharing everything and it was just like explosive growth out of, I don't want to say nowhere because you put in a lot of work and it took a little while, but it wasn't out of paid marketing. It wasn't out of a big inside sales team. It was out of this style marketing that you do. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you meant? Yeah. So basically what I meant was, um, you know, I, I think for a long time we were very product focused in our marketing. And, um, I think that makes sense when you're starting. Cause it's like, all right, we have a product, people are paying for it. Uh, what should we do? We should talk about the product. That sounds like a great idea. Right, right. Um, so we were certainly doing that. And, um, you know, one of the challenges there was, most products I think are not that interesting and um, they're not that interesting unless you're ready to buy right then. And so that can be, if you have someone who has purchasing intent and they're ready to buy right then and they find you, that's obviously great to talk about your product. But if you want to grab someone and keep them in an audience, like product is usually not the hook that's going to keep them there. In our case, we made some content that accidentally was uh, like proved to us that we should get farther outside of the product. So we made we made a video um, that was completely spur of the moment. And um, so this guy, Chris Levine, who's on our team and runs like video here, he came into our office and for free just shot a video. There's six of us on the team, shot this video of us like working and like flying our little like helicopter on the office and like playing ping pong, yes, but like basically just like doing nothing. But we put it to fun music and there was like some like cultural elements to this video. It was like, I would describe it as a culture video. And we just put it, you know, we put it on the website and uh, I submitted it to Hacker News thinking like nothing was going to happen. I was just like, why would, you know, I don't know. It just, why not? I was really proud of this video and it took off and there was all this traffic and um, it came back. And then like two weeks later, we had a spike in deals. And at the time we had a two week free trial. And I had my mind blown because I was like, wait a second, that video had absolutely nothing to do with our product and it still got people excited. Um, and then we had two more things happen that were like basically exactly the same, where we launched a new team page and if you type dance on it, we would all jump around and dance and it would play like girl talk music. And that, you know, got some social traffic and came back and two weeks later, there was another spike in deals. Um, and the same thing happened with a video that was just showing us moving our furniture around our office. I realized that, that sounds super boring, but again, it was just like, it was kind of fun, like a time-lapse video of people moving furniture around. There's a little behind the scenes look, nothing to do with video hosting, nothing to do with analytics, nothing to do with ROI, like so far away from that stuff. 
And yet people got excited about it and they'd be like, oh, what's the product behind this marketing? And the light bulb started to go on for me that if we could, we could make a lot more content that was not focused on our product that showed behind the scenes and start, you know, that kind of evolved into showing what we care about. Um, and those were the big moments at the beginning that sold us on this. It still took years to get to a place where that was like the biggest driver mm -hmm. of our marketing, but we had glimmers at the beginning that sold us on that idea. Chris and I went on to talk about whether you need some sort of special ingredient or mentality at your business, or whether he thinks that for the most part, any business can actually do this marketing emission thing. I think some companies can. And um, I think if you look at the most successful uh, like B2C companies, like every one of them, GoPro, Nike, Red Bull, they're all selling missions. They're not selling products. Right, like right. Nike, just do it, obviously, is a mission that anyone can be an athlete, basically. And we just you just should have the same tools and just buy the same shit. Money's got to be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. And um, I think that you can, sell, you can sell some people on that, but I, usually it's more of a transition where um, you're making content and you're focused on getting leads and you're focused on doing these other, whatever the, your direct marketing goals are that you're trying to accomplish right now. And the thing that I would encourage is like trying to add more personality or like start to like add um, elements of selling that mission into that other content. Because what will happen is you'll start to get qualitative results where people say, wow, like I love this piece of content. There this changed how I think about something. Then you go back to your peers, you go back to your boss and you're like, hey, look, like we did get a lot of leads from this, but look at the conversation that's happening. Like, look at the tone of it. Money's gotta be the shoes. Um, this just happened to us. Like yesterday, we had someone new start last week and she re released her first blog post yesterday. Um, and it's called like uh, shot sequences. And it's basically like, what the hell are shot sequences? It's like, should it be a close up, a medium shot, a wide shot? How do you like put these things together? And if you go look at the comments on Twitter, you know, there's not a huge amount of traffic to this thing yet. Like we didn't email it out. We didn't, we shared it on social, but it was not like, you know, we're not trying to make some viral hit here, but the comments are like, this is going to change how I think about making video. And when you look at that and you think to yourself like, oh, maybe there's like 500 page views or a thousand page views, but there's 10 people who said something similar. I look at that and I'm like, we need to throw the throttle down on this. There's like, there's more opportunity with this type of content. And I think that that's what you want. You want something that's going to kind of like help you solve that immediate goal. But then also you can take qualitative stuff and bring that to the people around you and be like, wouldn't you prefer to have more of a conversation right. like this? That's playing the long game. Right. And, but it adds up. And I think this, the, the hard thing there is like making sure you're hitting short term goals so that you can buy time to do the long term stuff. Right. So in Boston, it's easy for people to say, I have a boring product anywhere. It's easy, but I think Boston has either the stigma or maybe it's partially true. There's lots of biotech, B2B infrastructure, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, out West, maybe a little bit in New York, you have your media, your ad tech, your consumer apps, all that stuff. And yeah. so they like your Nikes and Red Bull at scale. They try to do the mission stuff. Yeah. What would you say to someone who's in Boston and is like, ah, yeah, this is way too boring to have a mission around. I would say that a lot of the products that we love really deeply are um, at their core like pretty boring. We just don't realize it. And uh, I think that the it's like a difference in attitude. It's like, yeah, no, we're, it's, as you said before, like I think there are a lot of good excuses around here, 
There've been some amazing companies that have been built that no one's ever heard of that are really B2B focused, that are infrastructure focused, that you would never think that like they need to market at scale. Video hosting is obviously extremely boring. Like that's, people say to me, actually that's my favorite question after like giving a talk is like, someone's like, what am I gonna do if like I have a boring product? Like Wistia isn't boring. I'm like, well, like you do realize that all you're doing is uploading a video to us and then we encode it, which you could do using compressor on your Mac if you want. And then we deliver it. So people download it. It's like upload, download. And yes, there's more stuff to it. And yes, like there's all this like marketing and analytics stuff that's like built into it, but it's most fundamental. It's almost like an infrastructure thing. Mm -hmm. And if we were to, if you were to go look at a lot of our competitors, you'd think this is boring as sin because it kind of is. And I think it's just how it's presented. Um, and I think that it's just being comfortable taking those risks. Cause I think the other thing about it, as you were saying before, is the ROI is harder to see in the short term. And sometimes the only way to see it is looking at your marketing holistically, which people don't want to do anymore. Um, and saying like, all right, what's the total cost of our, our whole investment in marketing? What's the people cost? What's the time cost? What's, what's the total cost? And then how many leads are coming in? Cause if you do that with us, like the numbers are amazing, right? But if you do that on an individual basis, like sometimes they're not perfect. And it's like, for me, it's like get holistic and think about that stuff and be willing to like have an opinion and take a risk. Cause that's, that is the biggest difference is someone here will push you and be like, that's not going to work. This is a boring industry, you know, and you can just get, show me the numbers. And, you know, I feel like, uh, out West you'll see people who will invest in brand more. So if you're just starting out and you're listening to this show and you're like, I'm, I'm totally on board, Chris, love the idea of marketing a mission. I don't care that my product maybe is boring. Where do I even start to figure that out? Is it just something that kind of happens through trial and error and you figure out like, oh, this is our mission? Or are you like, okay, I'm sitting down for 20 minutes and I have to like figure out a statement? I think you can, I think you can do it either way. Um, I personally have actually uh, walked a number of people through this process um, can you give us like a really quick crash yeah, course? Yeah. The quickest thing I would say, so at, at Wistia Fest, which was our conference like two months ago, we had like 200 people come and the second day was all workshops. So we broke into groups of 30. So I had three groups, each of like about 30 people. And we ran through like how to come up with like content missions. Um, and the thing that we kind of found is that like, generally you want a content mission to be really helpful. Um, or you want it to make it easy to be able to teach with this thing, you need it to be bigger than your company. And um, you need it to be a lot bigger. And to prove this point out, I basically picked a really boring product and then we all tried to come up with missions for it. And the product that we used was this thing called a stand-up pouch. Hi, I'm David Baranek with standuppouches.net. Stand-up pouches continue to be one of the fastest growing segments of the packaging industry. So. A stand-up pouch is a, <laughs> it's like, like it looks like the thing that Capri Sun comes in, um, but usually it's sold to <laughs> people who like sell almonds and like stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the reason we chose it actually, cause there's a customer of ours that sells stand-up pouches and they make pretty great content. And I, it's just like, but it's fundamentally, what is it? It's a pouch that stands up, like it's silver. These pouches, also known as stand bags, are made from multiple layers of barrier film laminated together. That gives it the strength of the pouch. And so we started coming up with missions for this thing. And when we started getting like thinking like, all right, we want something where the stand up pouch solves like 3% or less of the overall mission. We want it to be really helpful. We want to be teaching focused. And some of the things that we came up with was like for stand up pouches were um, 
like helps you organize your life. They store flat, ship flat, and take up very little space in your warehouse or building. And like making sense of the world was another one. And like um, standing up for what you believe in was probably the most clever, but like like using the setup pouch thing in it. And the one that stuck with me is this organization one. Because they're trying to sell to other businesses, like saying, like, all right, you're making, you're roasting almonds, put them in here. You're roasting popcorn, put them in here. Trust us, these stand up pouches will be resealable. Printed stand up pouches will allow you to build your brand for chocolate and candy or both. Um, and the organization kind of concept, you can instantly just think of like, well, you can talk to these people about organizing their factories, you can talk to them about organizing their production processes. You can talk to them about using Trello and Asana. You can talk to them about all of these different types of things. And as long as you can tie the mission close enough back into what this thing is. And so in that case, it might be like organizing the industrial world or something like that. You can get an audience where some percentage of those people are going to know somebody else. They're going to say, this company is on fire. Like this content's so useful. You have to see this. And they'll tell the people who, you know, manufacture those goods who would need a product like this. Remember, folks, it's your product. Package it properly. Thanks. For as, bo- no offense to your customer, but for as boring as everybody says Boston startups are, I don't think there's one that's nearly as boring as a pouch. Yeah. No, there's nothing. And I, I think that's the point is that like, I mean, even Coke, man, what is Coke? Like Coke sugar is- Sugar water with some it's, bubbles. It's sugar water with bubbles. But what do you feel when you drink Coke? You feel good. You feel like you're enjoying your life and you're taking a sip of that Coke. And that's like billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars that have all helped us feel something because they've like sold this mission of like enjoying your life more. Right. And like, I don't drink Coke that much, but when I drink it, I love it. And I I think that like, I think it's just that deep connection. Because the other thing with missions is they tend to be emotional, um, which is also what makes them hard to prove out. But you might have hit the one word that now every Bostonian is like, oh, nope. Emotion, yeah. right? <laughs> the only emotion we feel is this like grit, grizzle, anger in the winter, <laughs> head down, not going to say hello to you. That's the emotion we love. Yeah, that's a classic. All right, guys, because I know some folks in Boston might cringe a little bit when they hear about marketing a mission and relying on storytelling and emotions rather than cold, hard facts and data and science, you know, Boston stuff. I wanted to share a really quick exercise that you can run through to do what Chris is talking about when he says to market a mission. I call this the one simple story, and it goes like this. In branding, there's a concept called the one simple thing. It's the one word or phrase that describes why the company exists and what major benefit they deliver to their customers. So for Coke, it's happiness, and more locally, Zipcar, for example, is about freedom. But we can take that one step further with this idea of the one simple story. Now, any story can pretty much be distilled into three parts, a status quo, some conflict, and a resolution. Those are the three parts to this one simple story framework. Let's dive into each for a few seconds and use a couple examples. To illustrate how easy and not Shakespearean this can be, I'm going to use a story that we learned as kids, a story that seems anything but intimidating, the Itsy Bitsy Spider, and as you'll see, it actually follows the one simple story framework perfectly, and I'll also use Wistia as the business example. So those parts again, status quo. That's a statement of your character's reality. And in the business setting, by the way, your character is your buyer. A conflict, that's some drama, some obstacle that your buyer has encountered. And yes, your product or service should help them solve that. And resolution, not your product per se, because somebody might not be ready to hear about your specific product yet, 
but the larger mission you aim to fulfill in getting your audience to that resolution and eventually to that product that you sell. Here we go. The itsy bitsy spider climbed up the water spout. Status quo. Conflict, down came the rain and washed the spider out. And then out came the sun and dried up all the rain and you know the rest, that's your resolution. Now for Wistia, and full disclosure, I'm actually making this up as I go here, it might sound something like this. Videos are a great way to market your business in today's humanized digital and social world. That's the status quo. But creating and marketing and analyzing videos can be pretty difficult. Not only do you have to know all those moving pieces, but there's a great big myth that you have to go viral, all thanks to you seeing too many cat videos. That's the conflict. So the resolution, the solution to this conflict, is to actually create helpful, useful videos that sure might not go viral, and that's okay. They do wonderful things both for your buyer and your business as a marketer. So if I'm looking at that one simple story and I'm Wistia, I can see that my buyer goes through this process, they've encountered this conflict, they need this resolution, and so naturally my mission to serve the buyer is to help them do more with video. And there's your one simple story framework leading right to a mission. A mission that you can then go market. So my dear Boston friends, go forth, not to market a product, but to market a mission. Figure out what your buyer's status quo is, what conflict they've encountered that your product helps them overcome, and how your business and your product are the logical resolutions to those conflicts. And then come up with a mission that can take your marketing to new heights and help your story spread. Whether that story is about helping people do more with video, even those people who sell stand-up pouches, or about giving inner-city kids brighter futures and a renewed sense of hope. Big thanks to Chris Savage, CEO of Wistia. You can learn more about them at wistia.com and be sure to check out their learning center using the link at the very top of the page. Awesome resources for video and business. If you'd like to help this story spread, you can tweet the podcast using the hashtag TechItForward, and forward is abbreviated FWD, and you can reach me directly on Twitter at JZO, that's J-A-Y underscore Z-O. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. I'm Jay Akunzo. Thanks so much for listening to Tech It Forward.